0: Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Hyporgenetics, Genetics, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of HogHearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's
1: episode. Today, we're going to talk about rebranding an industry with Mr. Brad Zimmerman. How are you doing today, Brad? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to have you here. Every now and then on the podcast, I like to take people from outside of our industry to share their stories, experiences, and perspectives so that we can internalize that and try to use that as inspiration as we feel and figure out where we need to go with our industry. Absolutely. Would you be able to introduce yourself and your background and a little bit about your role today?
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Brad Zimmerman. I currently live in uh, Davidson, North Carolina. Uh, I'm originally from Southern California, uh, married with uh, two teenage daughters, um, and I grew up in the the cradle of the automotive lifestyle, and that, whether I wanted to or not, just totally gravitate, gravitated towards that as a kid, and I was just, um, I, I immersed myself in cars as early as I can remember, and I've just always been a car guy. Um, you know, racing was a little bit on the fringe of that, but I was really just, I love driving cars. I love Um, seeing new old car or seeing new exotic cars and seeing old beat up cars, everything in between. So I I think I'm very much a product of where I grew up. Um, And, you know, one thing led to another As I got older. uh, I worked for a company in Southern California in experiential marketing uh, that was involved with a lot of sponsors in NASCAR at the time. And he decided to build a new shop uh, out in Charlotte, North Carolina or Concord, actually. And uh, he asked a couple people to move out, and I was one of them. And this was uh, late 03, 04. And uh, we moved out here in 2004, and I've been in or around uh, motorsports ever since.
1: And then you were at Chip Ganassi for a while and are now at uh, Petty, right? I was, yeah. It's also a different team now, right?
2: Yeah, so uh, Chip Ganassi for just about nine years. uh, And then I took a little bit of a break. Uh, just because I was physically and mentally exhausted, uh, and then uh, got back into it. Um, uh, Technically, I started with GMS Racing, but over the last month, uh, we purchased uh, uh, Richard Petty Motorsports and their charters. Uh, So technically, our new team is called uh, Petty GMS Motorsports. So uh, that's where I am now.
1: Awesome. We actually did a thing during the first month of COVID where Richard Petty recorded himself um, speaking uh, a thankful gratitude for farmers as they were out there through all that. And so yep. it's kind of a cool tie in if you will. Yep. yep. But uh, I want to add that our industry over the past 10, 20 years has been trying to figure out how it can best connect with consumers, how it can drive up product. It It's third in the U S pork's typically a leading protein throughout the world. If it's not due to other religious reasons in the Midwest or the Middle East or things like that. Mm-hmm. And as we start to get uh, other forms of protein and lab grown meats and things like beyond burger and beyond sausage, yep. the industry is constantly trying to figure out how it better connects with its customer base and and grows the consumption of its product. I wanted to speak with you to really talk about NASCAR as it had its glory days and then it's gone through its challenges. And if you could just give us some context of where it was and where it's at today and some of them struggles, I think that'd be a great place to start. Sure. Um, so the sport
2: started in 1948. Uh, it started down in Daytona Beach um, and uh, it originated Daytona Beach because there was a lot of uh, because the beach was so long and flat. There had a lot of people coming over, especially from Europe, and they're trying to break land speed records. And they were using the beach to accomplish that. Um you know, trying to compress the story here. There were some folks from the state of Utah that came out there and said, we have a, a thing of land in, in our state where you can go as fast as you, you want, as long as you want. So that was the Bonneville Salt Flats. So all of the top speed uh, racers uh, left Daytona Beach, moved, and then they would competed in Utah. And then that left uh, a racing infrastructure in Daytona Beach with really nowhere to go race. Um, uh, a couple of years advanced of that, uh, Bill France Sr., Uh, put his heads together with a lot of other local people and they decided to form NASCAR. Uh, He built the track down in Daytona. uh, And then a lot of the drivers that were competing in the sport, they originated from the um, uh, Carolinas uh, moonshine runners, um, uh, very talented behind the wheel of a stock car. Uh, And that's, that's kind of a, a very long story compressed into one um yeah uh the sport was very regional up until about uh the mid 70s um uh never was really hugely popular outside of uh the south um but was never really um sucking wind you know if you will mm-hmm. uh, uh there were a lot of tobacco laws that got were starting to get implemented on what you could and could not advertise on traditional forms of media Uh, Winston decided to get into racing uh, and really embrace racing because at that time it was legal to promote tobacco products um, on television and within a sport. So, um, you know, racing was like one of the original influencer type sports where it was a hack for media So instead of, you know, you couldn't buy uh, ad space on on television for tobacco, but you can sponsor a car that was on television for four hours uh, every (laughs) Sunday. So that was kind of like the original hack. Uh, And so uh, uh, 74, 75 is when uh, Winston or, you know, it was the Grand Nationals, I think was what they called the series. And then it became the Winston, NASCAR Winston Cup Series. Uh, And they had a run all the way until the early 2000s. And uh, I would say 96, seven, eight started the peak uh, early 2000s. It was red hot uh, 2003, four, five. It was white hot. And then in 2007 and eight, just massive implosion. A lot of that was because of the economy and they took a big hit. Uh, and then uh, ever since then, it's been um, it's been stable. Uh, it has not been where it used to be. Uh, there's a lot of things uh, fighting against getting back to where it used to be. I'm not sure we're ever going to get to that point, just given the the media landscape and, and how content is created and consumed and where it's consumed. Um, but they still have a good nucleus of fans, uh, both at events and on television uh, to work with. And, um, uh, you know, it's interesting. We are talking right before this. I think NASCAR is really at it in flexion point, literally right now, the second, uh, because uh, they had um, several generations of a car, uh, tube chassis, V8 engine, rear wheel drive, solid rear end, uh, four-speed manual, and that car evolved over the years. And that car's lifespan ended uh, this past month. And going Mm -hmm. into the new season, there is a new formula, which is completely foreign to everybody, and it very closely mirrors an IndyCar with fenders, like a GT3 IMSA sports car. Um, all off-the-shelf parts. There's about you know 12 or 15 different vendors that are approved through NASCAR that you have to buy the parts from those vendors. And instead of the teams designing and building the car, the teams are now buying parts and assembling the car. And that was uh, largely due to drive the cost down to uh, go racing because the costs really got out of whack and um that this was a big step that was needed to help drive those uh, costs down the cars are going to be more expensive per car but they're only going to mandate that you have seven per charter and in the back you know people used to have or you know back in the day people used to have 10 15 20 cars laying around the shop just in you know certain various stages um so these are going to be uh, purpose-built race cars But actually, they very much reflect more of a stock car now than they ever have. Um, Sequential six-speed, transaxle mounted behind the driver, independent suspension all the way around, um, and then an underwing. So it's, I mean, this thing is foreign to everybody in the sport, and it's um, going to be the great
1: equalizer, I believe. So it's been a big topic for the last 15 years about how... NASCAR needs to do something and you had kind of talked about it's gone through changes it it was never like well maybe there's some small things we need to do it it was always a conversation of we need to make a big change and can you kind of talk through what that's been like over the years and and what were some of the initial barriers to change and and what it took to really to really drive change
2: yeah so there's uh the stakeholders in the sport are t- Teams, drivers, um, tracks, uh, the series itself, and then uh, broadcast partners. Those are kind of your five stakeholders that are kind of driving the ship. And um, uh, getting all of those people to align, uh, you know, obviously sometimes is a bit challenging. Um, And then, like, for teams, uh, all the drivers are private contractors. So, um, you know, the the drivers have, you know, they can do kind of whatever they want. You know, it's just it's a lot of fiefdoms underneath one tent. Um, and it's, it's always been a little challenging because, uh, the tracks for many years, although they were getting the majority of the TV money, uh, it was hard for them to keep up and generate revenue to create an experience that was on par with some of the NFL stadiums that we've seen that look like spaceships. Um, the, the cars that we were racing up until now, um, we're pushing the edge of physics and were really cool, uh, uh, very, um, rudimentary parts and pieces, but the engineers did a lot of cool things with them to make them go as fast as they did. Um, the drivers have their own opinions. The fans are very uh, polarizing at times. Um, so there's just a lot of things to try and control. And, um, I'm not sure that, uh, NASCAR, again, my opinion, um, had, a plan to move forward while still not trying to screw up what they have built previously, and a, a lot of the sentiment from the fans was, "Well, you're you're forgetting about the people that brought you to the dance," uh, mm. and then they're trying to gravitate towards a, a new, a younger, a different fan base than what they have, which is kind of true. But uh, I I'm a big fan of and I think I think you can cater to those older fans and you can also cater to the younger fans. And um, I'm not sure that they had the right people in place at the uh, NASCAR series level to help drive the ship. Then Um, I, you know, after, you know, being back with uh, petty GMS now for a month or two and getting in some of the meetings with NASCAR that they're having prior to the season starting, you know, I'm looking at all the names and faces on the screen in these meetings, and there's a lot of names I've never even heard of. There's, and then when they show their faces, there's a lot of young kids working there. So um, I think that's great. I think that's that's exactly where the sport needs to go. Uh, NASCAR fans are still on the o- older end of the spectrum in in terms of uh, sports in the U.S. Uh, uh, age wise. So um, I I, th- I think they're headed in the right direction. Um, out of a hundred step process, they're probably at step six. And, mm. you know, to move towards really moving the needle and recapturing a new fan base and then to churn out a new fan base every few years, um, I think that's where it needs to go. And for so many years, I think the biggest problem was that they were reactionary to what was happening within about a two week window. And that's why you saw massive uh, tracks with huge grandstands. Uh, that's why you saw, you know, ticket prices that were, you know, not super affordable. Um, it was, uh, it was just a lot of money coming in the sport at one time. And I don't think anyone from the NASCAR level, at least was looking down the road to say, okay, this time, this period of time is great. It's probably not going to last forever. So what do we do when it doesn't? And I'm not sure they asked those questions or the right people were asking those questions. So what you have now is... Um, the, the media consumption is so spread out now. Um, so, uh, a, a TV rating of a two or a three is like a five or a six back in the day. And, um, uh, to keep that momentum and to keep that fan base engaged, there's a lot of new things that they have to do. And what you're seeing now, at least on social media, sometimes it's good or bad, uh, is the older fan base just totally losing their mind. Cause they're like, you Oh, this this sport's dead. You know, I'm never going to watch it again, but you know, they're still able to pull in a few million people every week for the majority of the year. So, um, again, I still think there's a a base there. Um, but I think, uh, I, I think the, the marketing, you have to segment your fan base and then create content that goes against those segmented fan bases and, and, and make enough content during Sunday to Sunday. So during the week, that it it gives people enough opportunity to say, oh, identify with that, or I don't like that, but I love this. You know, it's like dropping a brick of ice on the ground, and you see big pieces and little pieces spread everywhere. That's what your content should be, because everyone's going to gravitate towards something different, and then they all come together on a Sunday. They watch a race, mm-hmm. and then it starts. The cycle starts over again until the next Sunday. So that's um, a
1: great, that's a great point. And and I remember reading something or I was watching something where. It the sport had grown so fast that yep. you you just pay stupid money for a lug nut that gained you a tenth a second, and yep. you just had so much money going into it because the money was there, and then it almost out engineered itself to the point where when things did come back to a realistic level, it was just overly expensive and it just wasn't sustainable.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah, the um you know even though if you look at a stock car you know previous to today. Um, It was like the rear end was out of a 1957 Chevy truck. Um, You know, the technology, at least um, it was, it was sheet metal. It was aluminum panels. It was a V8 engine. It was rear wheel drive. It was just, there was nothing sexy about it from a technology standpoint. However, when you gave all those parts and pieces to an engineering team at the team level, and then what they were able to make that car do on the track, that's where the magic was. And uh, I'm, I'm a car guy, but I also love the technology behind it. I totally nerd out on that stuff. Yeah, And um, I was able when I was at Ganassi, you know, they were, we had some really great engineers and they would kind of let me sit at some of these meetings and man, they were trying to split the atom. Like it was, you know, where could we pick up, you know, a little bit of an airflow here or, um, you know, are we building too much friction here? How do we, re- how do we reduce that? You know, so building horsepower wasn't just, coming out of the engine it was every single place where there was air hitting a surface or something rotating or reciprocating they looked at everything and uh, and it was really cool but that's where it gets really expensive uh, and you know some of the stuff that they would uh, innovate and I'll use air quotes uh, to make the cars go faster that was even more fascinating and it was unfortunate because I don't think any one team wanted to come out and say, Hey, here's what we're doing. Yeah. But I, but I think if they did, it would, it would really scoop up a new fan base of tech nerds because um, like, you know, we were using, when we were at Ganassi, we were using aircraft grade steel that you would find in a landing gear because it would flex, but also flex back. And then we were building certain pieces in the rear end. So when the car was under a load in a turn, the rear end would shift out thus giving the car rear steer to make the car want to go in a circle. Um, And it was, that stuff to me is awesome. It's awesome. It's it's so cool. But um, again, you know, I'm a big storyteller and I love telling those stories, but that was something that no one was willing to tell at scale. (laughs) And I think that was, I don't know. I think there maybe could have been a way you could have done that without pointing the finger at
1: anybody. Yeah. And I mean, to understand all of those things going on, you really have to be a an avid follower to try to pick up the various nuggets that are dropped along the way to understand the t- the, the tech side or the engineering right. side and to appreciate it. You're never yep. just going to tune in for a race and understand it. You've, you've got to be deep in it to really get it.
2: That's right. And I, you know, maybe to answer your question about, you know, what's going on with the pork industry, like a really good example. Uh, uh, I've been uh, married for over 20 years. I have two daughters, two teenage daughters, uh, and I have been in or around racing since 2001 or two. Me, none of my kids nor my wife have been to a race ever because they don't want to go. There's just no desire for them to go. And I'm not going to push them because a lot of times I'm at work, you don't want to go to the racetrack. So it's like, it just, they just never went. So fast forward to COVID time, you know, everyone, like everyone were you know locked in the house. My wife watches uh, Drive to Survive on Netflix about Formula One behind the scenes, which mm-hmm. I thought was awesome. She, she got sucked in it as, as well. We totally binge watched it. And then not too long ago, they had the final F1 race and uh, it was on eight o'clock here in the morning. And my wife and I are sitting down watching an F1 race. And she wants to watch it. Like, I kind of felt like, oh, are you going to sit here? Or are you just trying to be nice? And so she's asking questions and therefore I'm telling her what's going on with strategy and what happened towards the end of the race and who won and why he won and all the controversy surrounding it. And that only happened because she got involved through a portal through Netflix about seeing the behind the scenes of Formula One. And uh, I think there's a, a similar show that's going to come out Uh, around nascar not identical but very behind the scenes and very well produced and hopefully that will bring a new fan base in because all they need to do is just get a little bit interested and start asking questions of someone that may know it a little bit better conversation starts more questions get asked they get further drawn into the product and then it's a home run but
1: um so uh, yeah yeah so on that i mean when we look at the industry going through its challenge, you said you're in step six of like a hundred. Yeah. How, when you're steering a ship as big of an industry, how you, you probably have to have some pretty low expectations of how fast those changes can occur because there's probably people who think the status quo is good and that yeah. it's everybody else's fault and we're doing everything right. How does, how does the process of accepting that something has to change? What's that? What was that like?
2: Um, I, th- I think at least for myself and the team I'm with now, we have to focus on the stuff that we can control now. And we have to uh, be good stewards and, and good uh, information providers back to NASCAR when they ask us for our opinion and ask us for certain things. But because the sport is a sponsorship-based sport, uh, we have to differentiate ourselves compared to Penske, compared to Hendrick, compared to Rausch. And so, uh, when people are at the brand level are looking to invest in the sport, we need to get a seat at the table and then tell them how we can take their million dollars and turn it into $5 million through, you know, the promotion of their product or services or whatever KPIs they're trying to hit. And, uh, that's what we focus on because that's, that's, that's what we need because it's, it's not a traditional franchise sport like you would find in a stick and ball world. So, um, you know, I don't know. It's, um, you know, the other kind of elephant in the room is you look at the relevancy of the current formula of NASCAR and you look at what's happening on the production side in the real world with, you know, people going to the car dealerships, buying cars. Um, you know, we're still burning fossil fuel. We're still running a V8, um, which I think is great. It puts on a great show. It sounds great, but, uh, you know, obviously everything is pushing towards, um, renewable, uh, no internal combustion engine, you know, by the year, you know, 2030, 2035, depending on where you are in the world. Um, uh, There have been, you know, more than rumors, but they're definitely it's in the pipeline to potentially have a hybrid system come to NASCAR. Um, IndyCar is going to have a hybrid system, I believe in 23. Um, And uh, I think, I think honestly that's going to help a lot of stuff. Um, But even, from that standpoint, from the technical standpoint, and from the manufacturer standpoint, that's that's a huge uh, thing to deal with and a huge thing to navigate around. And um, again, there's so many different stakeholders in the sport that carry almost equal amount of weight. Uh, it's, it's hard to get everyone to agree on which direction to go. And then at the team level, it's hard to um, showcase... Uh, your point of difference to attract sponsorship dollars, because I think from a negative standpoint, the industry as a whole has turned the paint scheme, and I'll use air quotes, you know, per each race, and they've turned that into a commodity, and, um, you know, everyone has a number, right? you know, it's, it's $50,000 a race, it's it's a half million dollars a race, and, you know, teams will compete against each other for those sponsor dollars when they come in, and then they'll end up driving the price down because they're trying to compete with each other to give the best deal for the sponsor and they end up driving the price down. So mm-hmm. um, I instead of leading with, hey, you know, our paint scheme costs three hundred thousand dollars a race. I like to lead with, hey, here's all the content we can provide you and, and we'll build it because we have our own in-house uh, capabilities to do that. Um, here's our strategic team that's going to work with your strategic team. And we're going to almost behave like an in-house agency for you that can move very quickly. But also we have a platform on digital that's, you know, five, 600,000 total. And then we're in front of 4 million people every Sunday, almost throughout the whole year. So we want to be that solution provider for brands in order to get their media dollars coming to us. Which is a huge change. Right. And oh by the way, the paint scheme's free because nobody cares. Like, I'm not gonna get into the argument of out trying to outbid someone on a paint scheme. What you're going to pay for is all the stuff I just described that happens mostly between each Sunday, and you can have a paint scheme for nothing. So, so it's yes. a
1: sponsorship as of service kind of model. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's kind of neat. Yep. So when you think about change. And all that goes with it. How do you embrace, how do you personally look at embracing change and understanding your customer as best as possible? Yeah. I personally,
2: I'm a big fan of change. I am not a traditionalist. I do not, um, uh, I like to innovate as much as I can, as much as the cars are innovating on the track. I love to do the same, if not more, off the track to provide more value for us. So I personally love change. I also know that I'm probably in the minority just from a global standpoint of people liking change. They probably mostly don't. Um, and the, the NASCAR fans, if you, you know, start reading the comments, which is its own wormhole, if you go down, it's such a wormhole. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's not a lot of people that like change, not a lot of positivity. Yeah. So I think, um, So again, I think you do both. I think you push forward, you do innovative new things. You have to do that to to constantly reinvent your deliverables and what your point of difference is. But I think through storytelling, especially where our team is now having probably the most recognizable name in the sport, we can tell the stories that people may have not heard before. Or we can tell the stories that people have heard before, but someone that's maybe 12 or 13 years old, no clue. Uh, you know, we, we talked to a marketing manager from a company, a QSR out in uh, the West Coast two weeks ago. And I, I could tell by kind of the pitch of his voice how old he was. And I just kind of I mentioned I said, hey, do you know who Richard Petty is? And he said no. So, um that's we're we're at a point now where the people that are working their way up at the brand level and getting to the point where they become a decision maker, NASCAR has not been a part of their life. Racing has not been a part of their life at all. So there's this whole new generation that needs to understand where the sport came from. And I think that's a huge opportunity. And, but then I also think, um, you know, I'm a big, uh, I study a lot with the metaverse and NFTs and decentralization. And how do we take all of those, buzzwords that are happening now find out which ones are kind of BS and which ones are real and going to stick and then the ones that are going to stick how do you apply that to motorsports to keep you know moving the ship forward
1: I was uh, I was I was thinking before NFTs it would be pretty cool if you could buy an NFT and because you own that NFT you've got first dib to like car parts
2: that's exactly right yeah I I think the NFT world in, in racing Uh, is wide open. And I think most I've been watching most of them pop up. I think most of them will die because they're just going for a quick digital hit, a digital collectible. But I think if you build it correctly, uh, you know, maybe use the Ethereum blockchain where you can have that smart contract attached to it, then you can start including driver appearances, maybe have dinner with Richard Petty. You know, there's only five people that can do that. Um, So you start creating these custom experiences that only you can get through owning an NFT. Um, I would love to see the Metaverse happen tomorrow. And I know there's a lot of big companies that are building theirs now. I know Roblox and Fortnite are, are already ahead of the game. NASCAR has come out and said that they've worked, they've partnered with a company that they're going to start their Metaverse, whatever that strategy looks like. It's it's going to be a little while before that uh, gets online and gets uh, adopted at a massive level. But I'm glad to see that they're doing it. And that's going to bring in a whole new generation of fans, um, which is is what we need
1: right now. How how can, and it's kind of a brainstorm here for a quick minute. Yep. How do you imagine NFTs or the metaverse could be applied to food?
2: Um, so um, I, I didn't do a ton of research on this, but one thing that comes to mind is that restaurants are selling their tables as NFTs. So there's a, a digital NFT uh, that, you know, is collectible and you can trade them and put them in your wallet. But then when you are not sitting at the table having dinner you can sell that NFT, sell that time, and then you get a cut of whatever their check is. Um, and the mm-hmm. restaurant almost becomes like a private club. Uh, and then you can start really getting creative on how interactive that club is, what the experience is when you go there, what chefs are going to be there during that time, uh, chefs that specialize in pork dishes, and you know maybe they go through a full rotation throughout the year. You know the you know dinner and drinks, like uh, you know what bartenders are going to be there. So um, I like right off the bat, I would say that because I, I I'm almost positive that is starting to be adopted now where restaurants are using NFTs and the smart contract to sell, uh, you know, to keep their restaurants full with people. I think that's cool. Um, and then, um, you know, I don't know. It's uh, maybe farms taking on more of a brand. Um, you know, you see the um uh, you know the uh, Board Ape Yacht Club, and you know the the apes with the cartoon characters, and they're all different, and they have you know wearing sunglasses and whatever. You know, so maybe these farms uh, build out more of a visual representation of what their brand is. Uh, I would imagine a lot of farms now in the U.S. are just basically you know the the name, the last name of the family that started it. Um, you know, maybe a, a branding agent goes through and, and like builds a logo for them and builds a strategy around their brand so that their pork becomes maybe called for, you know, instead of saying, Hey, I want to, want a vodka and soda. I want a Tito's and soda. So maybe get to the point where people are calling for a specific brand of pork when they buy. Um, but, uh, I don't know. Those are just some initial thoughts.
1: So when you look at your, your consumer customer viewer, yep. how do you differentiate what they're asking for and what they want? That's a great question. Um,
2: I think the one of the benefits of social media is that we can literally read comments. We, we could ask a question and get their comments right back in the same day. And then over a period of time, you can kind of collect an, on what, what they're saying in total. Um, that's hugely beneficial. Uh, and, you know, like I, like you said, and both of us said, there's a lot of toxicity on social media, but I think if you use it correctly, it can be a really powerful tool to help give you insights into what your brand is delivering. Um, uh, Sometimes, uh, at least from my seat, uh, especially in NASCAR, sometimes the fans don't know what they want until they see it. And then they may Mm -hmm. see it and they're like, that's cool. So again, I, I take a lot of that responsibility to look, keep looking forward to see what fans may want knowing that I too am a car person. I like racing. I am a fan of racing in general. So therefore I will like this. And um, this conversation came up literally this week, uh, you know, hero cards, you know, the eight by 10 glossy cards with, you know, the hero shot of the driver on the front and all the statistics of the crew on the back. Everyone in the garage does it. Uh, like to me, they just give me indigestion. It's like, that's what people did in the 90s and the 80s. Like, how are we going to digitize that and move it forward? And I think an easy way to do that is have a QR code on the truck, on the car, on, you know, on display at the back of our hauler when we're parked in the garage. People take a picture of a QR code. That QR code takes them to a landing page and they can download digital hero cards that are formatted to be the wallpaper for their smartphone. That'd be cool. Why don't we do that? That we can do that. I can do that right now in the next two hours. Let's just do that. And hero cards, they cost money to have the photo shoot. They cost money to produce. And then you're giving them away. (laughs) Like, let's let's use our brain here. So like, you know, again, how engineers would look at a car and make every piece as efficient as possible. I would look at everything that we deliver off the track, literally every piece and go through and say, okay, this stays, this goes, this has been done for 30 years. Let's throw that in the trash and let's move forward and start really pushing the boundaries of how people are going to embrace what we have. And, uh, and I, I think through that process, uh, we will gain new fans. We will gain trust with the fans and we will also introduce them to new things that they never even knew existed, but Holy hell, like this is great. You know, so I, I, I'm a big believer of that process.
1: How important is the, the way you communicate or the way NASCAR communicates to its viewers? How important is it the way they communicate when it comes to change and, and the way they say, hey, this is something we're trying versus this is something we're doing? Because when yep. you see something as a customer or a fan, maybe you don't like it. Yep. You all of a sudden have this fear. Oh, my goodness. It's changed. It's gone forever. What just happened? Or you yep. see something and you're like, this isn't very great or this is awesome. Is it going to stay here? How yep. do you have to manage that communication?
2: Um, you know, I think that's where the trust of NASCAR comes in, because if you're talking a uh, global change throughout the sport, especially with this new car, uh, the, the teams can help pull the rope, uh, to a certain level, but I think that communication needs to come out from the sport itself because it affects everybody. Um, so that's, that's one way to do it. And hopefully the right parts and people and timing is in place to, to make that happen. Um, I, uh, if it's during broadcast and it's just basically calling a race, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen or not, but what the Manning brothers have done on these yeah. alternative broadcasts, I don't know why anyone in NASCAR has not done that already, and maybe have a PG thirteen or maybe an R version of it, and on Twitch, you know, pick pick your platform, you know, and and again, I'm sure there's things you things in the contract in place that you can't do that because people will own alternative broadcasting and streaming rights and broadcast rights, blah, blah, blah. But assuming that's blank slate and going forward for the new TV contract. Um, I think if fans want to hear, uh, older drivers comment on the race, then they can watch one thing. If they want to hear some college kids, maybe a la barstool sports esque, uh, call a race, uh, there's that channel too. If you want to find out more about the the driver's girlfriend, as opposed to what's happening on the track, here's a here's a channel for that too.
1: So, um, I can imagine yeah. I can imagine a Jimmy Spencer Tony Stewart broadcast would be fairly interesting,
2: <laughs> and it would be I guarantee it'd be the most popular broadcast. But <laughs> um, you know, we there's no rules on Twitch when it comes to you know there's there's you're not dealing with the FCC, um, and so I'm hoping you know this new uh, rights contract, which ends in 24. And then first year of the new year is 25. I'm hoping that NASCAR, um, their media team and their senior management are really, uh, really being strategic about all the different parts and pieces that they have to sell to a potential broadcaster. And they're squeezing every living penny out of every um, vertical uh, to, to, to make the sport more um, uh, open and uh, appeasable to all different types of fans and not just the, the older 60 or 70 year
1: old fans. Yeah, we were talking with Jonathan Kraft briefly, son of Robert Kraft, uh, the Patriots, and they were talking about the uh, um, TV deals and how yep. so much is going to be changing because of that. And when we look at every industry, not just food, but where people go to become entertained is going to be changing a lot. That's right. And to be on the forefront of understanding how you can play a part in that will have a lot to do with how you are positioning yourself as being a thoughtful around sustainability or around change, whatever it is, is there's so there's never been more opportunity, I think, to reposition a brand than now. Right. Yep. But it's all, there, there's so many weeds to get through to figure out totally. which direction you're going to go with it.
2: Yeah. And, and then the other thing is, um, you know, uh, again, my opinion from what I'm seeing, you know, five years ago to today, maybe even more than five years ago, is any good component of a good story, you have to have great characters. And if you look at the people that attract the most attention within NASCAR, those are the drivers, And whether they're on Sunday or they're on their own social media during the week, putting out their own content, they attract a lot of eyeballs. And um, if you look at a statistical standpoint of the drivers in NASCAR now, um, they're probably some of the best crop of drivers um, in the sports history. They're starting go-karting at four years old or five years old, and they're working their way up. The, they're driving thousand horsepower, you know, wing sprint cars when they're twelve, and That's then crazy. you know they were getting up and getting into a cup car in their, you know, early twenties. And you know Ayrton Senna, who was arguably the best race car driver ever, he was karting when he was twenty-one years old. And if you're karting when you're twenty-one years old, you're never going pro ever. It just doesn't happen anymore. So even though I think that they are statistically some of the best drivers and best capable drivers from a technical standpoint, we need to work on some personalities and, yeah. uh, building the <laughs> characters. Uh, there is no more Dale seniors, uh, Tim Richmond, uh, those types of characters are gone. And I, I kind of know why, but, um, I don't know this when you have the grid walk, and they're doing the national anthem during a NASCAR broadcast. And they have the cameraman kind of, you know, walking through down the grid when everyone is stationary, everyone kind of looks the same. They kind of, you know, there's a driver, there's, they have a wife or girlfriend, they got a couple kids and onto the next car. And Oh, guess what? It's the same thing. And the next car is the same thing. Like show me a character, give me someone that I can sink my teeth into and get behind. And yeah, um, good or
1: bad sometimes too. Right. Like good or bad. Right. I mean, that's right. Junior had character. Kurt Busch had character. Kyle Busch has character. Denny Hamlin gave us character this year and people criticize him for it, but it it created a good story. Yep. Yep.
2: And I think the, one of the reasons why you don't see their true characters come out is because the way the financial model is set up in the sport. Um, they're afraid to say the wrong thing and the sponsor will drop them. That is, that is probably 90% of the reason why these guys really don't come out of their shell and kind of say whatever they want to say. And, um, we 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 had one driver that that was his belief he was really uh, uh aware of what he was saying and his pr person got him uh, uh there was like a top 10 column in the usa today of like top 10 things that you would do and they asked all you know celebrities and sports personalities and stuff and it was like you know what are the things you're going to take with you if you're stranded on a desert island and one of the questions was you know what are you going to take for food and he, and he said oh i going to bring a steak and a beer or whatever it is they got it got printed the usa today Uh, his pr person gets a call from his sponsor mcdonald's uh and they say what the hell like you're sponsored by mcdonald's you should have said a big mac you know and so the driver goes (laughs) back to the pr person and says this is exactly why i don't do this stuff you know i stay in my tiny little lane and don't bother me so I can understand his point of view, but that's also, I think, one of the reasons why these drivers aren't household names yet, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, we've, we're we no longer in a place where we can have those. Yeah, no, that conversation comes up a lot. And for the sake of yeah. time, I think I'd like to kind of move to the last question we always ask people. And first sure. off, thanks a ton for speaking through this and yep. helping us see how we can draw parallels to some of the experiences that NASCAR is going through and and what rebranding looks like and what taking advantage of technology in the future is looking like. The question I like to wrap things up with is what's a golden nugget or a life lesson you've had along the way that you can share with listeners? Yeah, I,
2: um, don't ever stop learning. Um, I, I, I can't stress that enough. And, um, you know, the, I applaud you for doing this podcast. And I, you know, I, I did my homework on you before I, I got on here. And it seems like you're, you're moving mountains at still a very young age. So I applaud you for that. But I would suggest keeping that momentum and keeping that, um, that drive until the day you drop dead. And I think too many people uh, go through life the traditional way, uh, especially from education standpoint. Uh, they get to a certain hurdle and then they become complacent the rest of their life. And given all the tools that are out there that you can go do research and learn, uh, YouTube alone is ridiculous on what you can learn off of YouTube. Obviously, like don't don't stop when you're 25 of learning how to do things or learning. You know, I I've listened to your podcast. I, I I'm not going to get in the agriculture business. I have no idea how to raise a hog, but I've I have listened to several of your podcasts previous to this, and they're fascinating because it's just a whole nother subsection of what's going on that I think is really interesting and people, whether they're into it or not, there's a lot of, uh, key takeaways from that. So that would fall into the bucket of never stop learning. Um, listen to different podcasts, uh, listen to different people's thoughts. Um, and just, just stay open. Um, and I, I, know there's a lot of noise out there, but just stay open and, and keep learning. And then if you still are working and hasn't, haven't retired yet, take those learnings and apply it to your job and watch what happens. Uh, really cool things happen.
1: Well, we appreciate you, Brad, for coming on and talking with everyone. And we wish you the very best in the new year. And thank you. Thank you. Yes, a lot. sir. Yep. Thank you.